Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm John Prado from The Economist. You've got a couple of hosts with colds tonight, as you can probably already hear, so you'll have to endure our sad little sniffles and raspy voices. But John, how are you feeling over there? I've got the contents of about half a pharmacy sitting here next to my microphone <laughs> and my headphones, so I'm I'm feeling good, Kai, I, I have to say. And I'm reliably informed that whatever I have can't be caught over radio or the internet or <laughs> however our listeners are listening to this. So let's get into it. Let's get into tonight, it. Tonight we're talking about American involvement in the war in Syria. As you all know, on Thursday, President Trump ordered a missile strike uh, of an airfield in Syria following a horrific chemical attack earlier in the week. The Trump administration says that Assad's regime was responsible for that chemical attack and that the missile strike was a proportional response for a violation of the laws of war that prohibit chemical weapons. The civil war in Syria started over six years ago. Hundreds and th- hundreds of thousands of Syrians have died. Many more have become refugees and there is no end to the violence in sight. It was among the Obama administration's most vexing problems, but Donald Trump was crystal clear about this during the campaign. The United States is not the world's police force. That's where he that's where he was coming from. That stance set him in sharp contrast, not just to Hillary Clinton, but to the whole Republican establishment. He said Iraq was a terrible idea. Anything that looks like Iraq would be a bad idea. And we're not going to do it. That was his doctrine. America first. So. That begs the question, now that we have bombed Syria and threatened the Assad regime, is regime change now on the table for the Trump administration? Here's UN Ambassador Nikki Haley talking to, G- to CNN's Jake Tapper yesterday. We know that it is not going to be, there's not any sort of option where a political solution is going to happen with Assad at the head of the regime. It just, if you look at his actions, if you look at the situation, it's going to be hard to see a government that's peaceful and stable with Assad. But then here's Secretary of State Rex Tillerson on Face the Nation with John Dickerson. Well, I think those continued actions by Bashar al-Assad clearly call into any question of him uh, expecting to have any legitimacy to continue as the leader of Syria. I think the issue of how Bashar al-Assad's leadership is sustained or how he departs is something that we will be working with allies and others in the coalition uh, but I think we, with each of those actions, he really undermines his own legitimacy. Is it a priority of U.S. policy to get him out of power? Our priority in Syria, John, really hasn't changed. I think the president's been quite clear. Uh, first and foremost, we must defeat ISIS. Now, elsewhere, Tillerson did insist the administration still rejects regime change, but he nonetheless very clearly defines Syria's problem as Assad. And all of this has delighted the Republican establishment, who, of course, spent six years trying to get President Obama to more aggressively target Assad. Here's Lindsey Graham on Meet the Press. 
I think ISIS should be Germany and Assad should be Japan, like World War II analogies here. Uh, accelerate the demise of uh, ISIL, their direct threat to the homeland, Assad's not. But I've never been more encouraged by the Trump administration than I am today. Uh, Ambassador Haley just said on your program, you'll never end the war with Assad in power. So that means regime change is now the policy of the Trump administration. That's at least what I've heard. So that's a lot. Has something changed fundamentally in Trump's doctrine over when and how we go to war? That's our question. And Trump supporters, we want to hear from you. Does the answer to that question matter? Did you vote for him because of his anti-interventionist America first stance? And if so, how do you view this missile strike against Assad's regime? Is it a betrayal or do you support the bombing? Tell us why. And then if you do support it, do you also support pushing out Assad? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And joining us first to help answer that and other questions about this are Deb Amos, who's the international correspondent for NPR covering the Middle East, and Phyllis Bennis, who directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Deb and Phyllis, welcome to Indivisible. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks a lot. We do not have colds. Speak for yourself. <laughs> that's, that's, good to, that's good to hear. Deb, can I start with you? Let's begin with some details about the Tomahawk strike that was authorized by the president. How much damage did it do? Did the system for forewarning Russia about it work? Has it changed much in Syria's civil war? It didn't do a lot of damage. It was more symbolic than damaging. These reports about taking 20% of Assad's air force out are, are just, you know, we saw the pictures coming out uh, of the air base. And, you know, there, there was some damage there. Uh, the Russians had a 90-minute warning, uh, which means the Syrians had a 90-minute warning. And so people had time to get out of the way. Um, I think we don't know if... This is a policy or an impulse of a president who decided that he would take images that he saw on television and make a statement that was something different than Obama. You know, I watched a lot of television today, and you see Obama officials giving different policy uh, outlines. If if I were the Russians or the Syrians, I, I'd wonder exactly what message are they sending? You have um, Sean Spicer today at his press conference saying that we would retaliate against barrel bombs. And I thought, really? That, that's a lot. Uh, you know, there, there are hundreds of barrel bombs. I, I don't know whether he misspoke. You see the UN ambassador being tougher than the president. You see the Secretary of State Tillerson um, being softer than the UN ambassador. So if I were Moscow or Damascus, I'd really wonder what this policy is. Yeah, interestingly, I had a word with our Moscow correspondent earlier today, who they're obviously waiting for Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to, to go visit there. And they are waiting to see what America's policy is, to see what Rex Tillerson tells them before responding in some way in Syria. You know, at the moment, they're having a tough time trying to figure it out, which, you know, I suppose you could argue is a good thing. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, Phyllis, can I, can I turn to you? Do you think that there is some kind of Trump doctrine emerging here on when and how to use force? No, I don't think there's a doctrine. I don't think there's a strategy. I think this was an action that will have unknown consequences. 
It could be because people are starting to ask that question, what strategy is this part of? What happens next? What happens the day after? What is the strategic goal here? And somebody may decide that at some point they're going to have to answer that in a more coherent voice than we've heard so far. This vast assortment of people saying vastly different things and all claiming to speak in the name of the Trump administration does not make for a very strategic approach. On the other hand, I think that the danger here is that acts of war, and this was a clear act of war, whatever one likes to think about whether it was justified or not justified, it was a specific violation of both U.S. and international law and was an act of war. And in that context, I think that what we're looking at is a scenario where acts of war sometimes take on their own trajectory, their own timeline. And even if, there's a lot of even if stuff here, even if this was something that was intended to be a one-off strike designed, as we know, to not create a lot of uh, injuries or a lot of casualties, the Russians were informed, they presumably informed the Syrians, everybody was careful that it not go too far, even if that really was the goal, these things have a way of getting out of hand. And presidents have used specifically tomahawk missile strikes on many occasions, going back to Bill Clinton, every president since, at moments when there was a political goal to be matched rather than a military goal that was actually part of a military strategy. Deb, that's part of my concern here is, for myself, is that, you know, whether whatever the strategy is, the point is that there's a strategy because it tells us when and where, when and whether and how a president will decide to use force and decide to go to war. This is the line between war and peace and the way we decide it. But I kind of have a deeper question at this point, which is you're saying this is an act of war, but, you know, we dropped something like 25,000 bombs on Syria last year, as I understand it. I'm kind of losing track of the difference between war and peace. Well, this is probably the most complex, um, you know, battlefield ever. And honestly, no one has done well with this one. It is just tough because it's more than even three-dimensional chess. You have all of these powers vying uh, for, you know, how to end this war, how to benefit from this war. And this particular event, you know, comes amid a set of turning points in different parts of Syria. You know, what we are not talking about is the fight against ISIS. Um, and that is going to play into what happens next. You know, what's, what series of forces will be able to take the town of Raqqa, which has been, um, you know, one of the capitals of the Islamic State. Um, and how everybody reacts to this particular event will play into the next steps. And I think that's why you are seeing Moscow being cautious in the way that they're responding, Tehran being cautious. Um, you know, the Israelis were some of the first to say this was Assad. This was at the highest levels. It was a 6 a.m. tweet uh, from Benjamin Netanyahu on that morning. Everybody is watching because of how complicated this war is, and everybody wants it to end, but how? And you Deb, know, this could is I the, just jump so, in with I'm that sorry, for a second? Jump in for this, sure. I was just going to say, I, th I think what Deb said is, is really fundamentally important, and just one thing I would add to it is this question about the, the complexity of this 
of this war. And, and it's absolutely right. The U.S. has dropped thousands of bombs in Syria. The difference here is that it's officially aimed at the Syrian government, which so far the U.S. hasn't admitted they're doing, whether they are or not. In fact, they're not admitting it until now. But the other question it raises is, does everyone, and in these, at my last count, 11 separate wars that are being waged in Syria, all to the last Syrian, even though it won't really help Syrians anywhere along the way, of all those forces that are fighting in these numerous wars, I think there are many who really want to win this war, whose commitment is not to end the war. And I think that's one of the things that makes it very, very difficult, because whatever kinds of negotiations go forward, and it ultimately will have to be negotiations and diplomacy that end it, it's not going to end militarily, whatever negotiations go forward, as long as both sides, particularly ours, frankly, are flooding the place with weapons, it's not going to work to have whatever kinds of negotiated arrangements w might be possible. So the question so, of, in fact, do people want to end it or do they really want to win it? So it's a fine point. Let, let's bring in callers here. And Trump supporters, we're specifically asking for you right now. We want to know, did you vote for him because of anti-interventionist America First stance? What do you think of this bombing? Do you support it or is it a betrayal of what you voted for? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And let's go to Sean in Hartford, Connecticut. Sean, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I wanted to say, um, at first, I, didn't, I did not vote for Trump. But after seeing what he did with that missile strike, um, he's got my support 100% on his international um, actions. I feel that what he did was was needed and required to step up for America and show our place in the international community because everyone was waiting for us to do something. And for us to watch this go down a second time, or, you know, these type of chemical use go down a second time and not step up would have just pushed back even more in that lineup. So that was definitely a very strategic and uh, a logical move to make. And it shows me that Trump is surrounded by wise counsel because I don't think he just did this on his own and it wasn't a spontaneous move. He saw it was a move that needs to be made by America. Sean, um, I, it sounds like we're losing you, but let me see if I can get a question to you here. It, yeah. You say it's a strategic move and, and, it, and it had to be done, but what we've been hearing is that it didn't really make any tactical difference. Uh, that uh, you know the, the the airfields were back up and running the next day. That there yep. was plenty of so. Exactly. So what what about what about it to you was so strategic? Why was it? Why was it? It so was strategic important? because it just showed that we're not sleeping giants. Okay, we're not just not going to do anything. We're not going to watch um, outright um, humanitarian uh, uh, destruction take place and not say something. Because we've always, as Americans, stood up for that in the, throughout the entire world. And we're not going to look at it anymore. But th despite how we talk about moving and taking care of America first, we're still going to, we still have a heart. And we're still going to stand up for, for outright murder. Okay, thanks, Sean. We got a tweet along. Thank you for that, Sean. We got a tweet along those same lines saying uh, something to the extent of, doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, forget the conspiracy series, forget the labels. If, it does, if this did anything to help the Syrian people, I'm all in. I'll put those to you guys, to uh, Deb and Phyllis, but first let's get uh, one more in here. Uh, Mark in Columbus, Ohio. Mark, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. I'll just say straight up it's a direct betrayal of what he ran on. I have military family. I, uh, that he promised us to not play world police, and there has not been a single decade the United States has not intervened abroad 
and we have little to show for it. The what I saw in the if you, if you really want to understand the conservative base that put Donald Trump in office, it's a complete and total reaction to the establishment Republican Party that we genuinely view as caring, wanting world domination. They're, they're okay with every intervention under the sun while simultaneously letting the Rust Belt languish. Mark, can, is, I, can I ask you, did, I don't know if you heard our previous caller, but, but who said, you know, this had to be done, and he supports the president for this because it, it showed that we had It had to be done as the excuse of every warmonger in the world. We're not the world's policemen. If this is a world issue, why didn't Brazil do an airstrike? Why didn't Egypt do an airstrike? Why didn't France do an airstrike? Why is it the job of the United States of America to play global policemen? So, thank you for that, Mark. Uh, Deb, uh, Deb and Phyllis both, but Deb, this idea, uh, we, we hear two colors there. One that says we have to stand up. We've got to have, we got to show the world we got heart, regardless of what the outcome is. Uh, and the other saying that that's always been the, 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 the lie that warmongers have told. Uh, what that's about- what's been so interesting to watch this week. You know, I watched Donald Trump run on, uh, you know, no intervention. He criticized uh, Obama uh, when this issue was up the first time in 2013. He said, don't, you know, don't go into Syria. This is bad. So, you know, he is risking his base on this one. And, you know, cynics have been writing all this week that this is a president who is coming up to his 100 days. A, he doesn't have much to show for it. Uh, a Supreme Court justice, yes, uh, which came today. But, you know, there's been the health care failure and he got enormous applause uh, from the establishment Republicans, from even uh, some in the Obama administration who had always wanted uh, President Obama to take this act. It's been really interesting to watch the dynamics of the politics. And you just had two callers that sum up uh, what the what the right dynamic is. And he, he got applause from Hillary Clinton even. <laughs> on, yes, he on, did. Yeah. Which, which is remarkable. But what's remarkable also about this, I think, is how much and how quickly we can leave out everything else. It's as if this was a strike on a country where the U.S. did not have bombing raids, bases, special forces, drone strikes going on for years. You know, when we talk about what Trump himself has to show in his first months in office... He's got at least 200-plus dead Iraqis just in Mosul. He's got more than 30 dead Yemenis just in that one failed raid. There's hundreds of deaths that have happened under his watch that he just morphed into being we'll, we'll have to, the policeman of the world. We're going to have to take a break. We're going to return to that thought, Phyllis, after the break. You're listening to Indivisible. We're talking with NPR's Deb Amos and Phyllis Bennis. We'll be right back. This is Indivisible, 
Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm John Prido here from The Economist. Phyllis, when we were leaving uh, before the break there, we started talking about um, all of the applause that, 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 that Trump got for this, this act. Um, and it is, in fact, a consensus choice. I mean, uh, as I said, Hillary Clinton endorsed it. Uh, Chuck Schumer called it the right thing to do. Uh, I, I think that even the Democrats who opposed it, all they opposed was the, uh, was the process by which it happened, that he didn't notify Congress, not the act itself. So, why is this consensus wrong, Phyllis? Is it, is it a, I, I, I know that you believe it is. Why is this a wrong consensus? Well, first of all, I don't think it's a complete consensus. I think there is plenty of opposition, even in Congress. I think that there are, uh, when Barbara Lee called it an act of war, I think that was a clear indication that she's not part of a, of a pro-strike in, uh, consensus. <laughs> but I think that where there is a consensus is on the sense that we should be doing something to help Syrians. It's a, you know, what, what Sean said at the very beginning, that he wants to support Trump now because he's doing something to show we still have heart. That's a really important emotion to be, to be talking about and to be trying to implement. The question is, what do we do? Whenever, it seems whenever there's a humanitarian crisis somewhere and, and someone says, we've got to do something, the assumption is we have to do something military, which almost always makes it worse. And what we're seeing here, if, Trump, who said that he was motivated by the killing of children, if he's so concerned about these particular children that were killed so horrifically, what about the children that were killed in Mosul? What about the children, including an American citizen, an eight-year-old child who was killed in his failed raid in Yemen? You know, these are questions that are not being asked. And I think if we want to do something to help Syrians, and we should, we bear a good deal of responsibility for the chaos there, because so much of it is rooted in the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq back in 2003, I think we should be looking at the Muslim ban. Those are the same children he's willing to slam the doors of our country in the face of these children and then weep for these same children and drop bombs in their country as a way of doing something about it. It isn't helping those children. And we have to get past the idea that the only way to do something is something military. Can I just push you on your your opposition to the strike that the president authorized? So the most compelling argument, it seems to me, in his favor is that what he did reduces the chance that chemical weapons are used again in Syria. Do you think there's nothing to that? I think there's very little to it. As we know, the, the exact base that was bombed, whether or not it was in fact the base from which chemical weapons were used, we still don't know that. We don't know who used them and how they were delivered. But even if it were, it's already up and running again. Now, is, is, uh, is the, the uh, government in, in Syria, uh, Bashar al-Assad and the people around him, are they going to see this as a major threat? I don't think so. It was designed to not be a serious uh, military strike in its own right, and I'm very glad that nobody more was killed, obviously. But the question still remains... What happens when someone else decides that an act of war on our, against us needs for us to respond? You know, they're under the same kind of political pressure that Trump is to show that they're not a wuss government, you know, to show that they're a strong, tough government. So but whether the Russians are involved or not, somebody, it may be a rogue commander, it may be uh, Bashar al-Assad himself, could decide this requires a response. 
and massive escalation is a danger. I hope that doesn't happen. I don't think it will at this moment. But the risk of it, supposedly because somebody was upset Phyllis, by what they saw on television, it just doesn't fly. Phyllis, I'm with you there on a lot of what you said. But here's my question is, you know, if not military intervention, then what? Right. I mean, that was right. the, the That's Obama's the key question. Well, and, you know, in, in, right. uh, we well, the Obama administration said, well, we tried diplomacy and we removed all the chemical weapons. That was plainly not true. That demonstrably failed. So diplomacy didn't work there. What, what, what is the answer then? Well, I think the answer is diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. We need more and we need better. Everybody acknowledges, even supporters of military strategies, agree that military stuff ends with diplomacy. It may not start that way, but at the end of the day, that's what you need. The question is how many people get killed, how many cities get destroyed, how many children lose their parents, all of those things before we get there. So what do we do about that? Well, it means that we have to start demanding that there be new diplomacy, a new diplomatic initiative, probably at this point because there are so many separate wars being waged in Syria. It's not any longer about just getting the two sides in Syria together. We have to start with getting the U.S. and Russia, then their respective regional allies. That means Iran has to be brought in as well as Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Turkey and the UAE and Qatar, the other regional powers. And, of course, everybody in Syria, both the armed factions, who are so far the only ones anybody is talking to, and the civil society, the incredibly brave resistance fighters that fought nonviolently at the very beginning of all this, those who still remain, those who are still alive, many have been killed, many have been driven into exile, but they have to be consulted as well, and the refugees. So it's a huge <laughs> it's challenge. It's a huge list. That's a it's lot a of people list, you got to get at the table, Phyllis. They're not all going to be at the same table. And let me just add one other thing, which is that I think we have to look at a new kind of diplomacy, in a sense, where you have these different levels. And at the end of the day, before any real diplomacy is going to work, we've got to start talking about an arms embargo on all sides. Because you can have whatever diplomatic arrangements you want, but as long as we and the other side are both flooding the place with weapons, nothing is going to work. So we have to be the ones to first say it, and then say, okay, now we're going to do it unilaterally. Now you've got to do it, too. Stop arming that regime. Okay, well, we're getting already calls from military families. So I want to actually put out a specific call for other folks who are now in active duty military and military families. How do you feel about this, this missile strike? Do you feel like uh, you're, well, we know you're going to be uniquely affected by it, but do you feel that there is a sense that our commander in chief has a coherent policy on when and how he would send us to war? That's 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And let's start with Clarissa in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hi, Chris, Clarissa, you're on the air. Hi. First of all, I have to say thank you for the show. I love it. I love listening to it. Thank um, you. It's great. <laughs> so um, I have to us. say, I, I honestly, um, first of all, I'm a military wife, and there are pieces that I definitely agree with Phyllis on. Um, ideally, we want to be able to take a humanitarian standpoint, do everything we can to help the humans that are affected by this. However, if something is going to happen, if our president decides who I voted for specifically because he wasn't going to get into office and send my husband to war, um, he has now 
essentially slapped the hand of the buyers of Russian weapons um, who are now just going to turn around and purchase more Russian weapons. Um, all they're doing is going to turn around and, and weapon themselves more, and they're going to be more prepared when my husband gets sent to Syria to fight this battle. Mm-hmm. So can I ask you, Clarissa, what, you know, if you'll speak for your spouse, do, do you guys agree on this? Do yeah. you agree that, uh, that, that we should not be intervening here? Absolutely. I think my husband um, and I have talked about it many times. And, um, you know, when he has to re-up or, or sign another contract, if we talk about is there a potential that he's not going to come home to myself and our four kids. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a piece to it that he wants to protect those that are less fortunate that don't live in the United States of America, where we have the freedom to speak freely, to be on talk shows and disagree. And um, it, it's, it's worth it to us if the battle is accurate, if we're being um, completely forthcoming, if we're actually going to make a difference. This airstrike didn't make a difference. If anything, like I said, they're going to be more prepared. They so know if, it had been a, if, if it had been a more directed, clear, strategic attack, that's something you could have supported? Absolutely. And, and, and I, know, I know what I'm saying. I know what the possibilities are. Um, but as long as it's going to make a difference and um, potentially help, then I, I uh, you know, agree that there is room for that at the table. Right now, there's no room to slap a hand and decide that, you know, hopefully this works. Hopefully this works. It's not going to work. Well, thank you for that, Clarissa. Uh, let's go to Jean in Jersey City, New York. Jean, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, I am a Trump supporter. Um, I've, one of the aspects of voting was uh, voting for him, rather, is because um, try to stay away from the military action. However, I am very happy he made this move. And the point being is that uh, I don't feel this is... He, he was doing this at... Naturally, he was not doing this as a strategic um, bombing. To me, it was a pure reaction to the chemical warfare. Um, indeed, chemical warfare has been banned for how many you know, decades? Um, and something had to be done. Now, I also, one reason I also despise the chemical warfare, and someone's got to say something or do something, is that it's, chemical warfare can annihilate people without destroying infrastructure. So once you have this chemical warfare come in, you can just kill all the personnel, just dump their bodies somewhere, and then you can just take over the town. And I think this is an extreme situation, and something had to be done. I don't see him actually pursuing any strategic on the ground, um, but I do believe this had to be done. Someone had to do it, and now everyone's opening their eyes. Thanks for that, Gene. Thank you. Deb, Deb, can I just come in with a question there? Listening to the callers, it struck me that when we talk about American uh, involvement in uh, in foreign conflicts, particularly in the Middle East, it's almost as if there's... Uh, scale on on the one end with doing nothing and on the other end with with Iraq and hundreds of thousands of American soldiers but America is currently involved in you know as Phyllis mentioned conflicts in Yemen uh, in Iraq 
in, in Syria to some extent, there is something between those two extremes, right? The, 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 the choice is not either send vast numbers of American soldiers or do nothing. It's not. And uh, it's, you know, what, what we are looking at is uh, a ratcheting up. This is Obama policy in the Middle East plus. Uh, and that we have seen over time. I, I want to address the one thing that Phyllis said before, and that's about diplomacy. And I think that there has been diplomacy, certainly uh, back-channel diplomacy. You know, there's a school of mm-hmm. thought that there has been some progress uh, between Moscow and Washington on some outlines. And let us not forget that a few days before this head-spinning turn, um, you had the Secretary of State and the UN ambassador saying it is not American policy to unseat Bashar al-Assad. There is a school of thought that that message was not for Damascus. It was for Russia. And the idea was that, you know, uh, Washington and Russia were moving towards some outline of a resolution. And Bashar al-Assad wanted to put a wedge between those two powers because he and the Iranians don't want a resolution on the terms that you would see perhaps a you know, partition of parts of Syria. Um, Bashar al-Assad has always said, I want all of it. Mm-hmm. And there is a school of thought that says that the Russians were not terribly upset uh, that President Trump bombed that airfield, that, that Bashar took a risk um, and he embarrassed them. They now have to defend him. Uh, it is putting Washington and Moscow further apart, especially with some messaging that we saw today, where the AP had a story late in the day that there is evidence that the Department of Defense has. It looks a little thin in that first reporting that the Russians knew uh, the chemical weapons were on that base, that they were complicit in that attack. Um, you, it's It got a little uh, messy late in the day with, with the messaging. But, you know, who wins out of this? Who uh, actually uh, wins the argument? Uh, does Bashar, because he moves Washington and Moscow further apart, um, does the Trump administration take some advantage of this? Are they able to move Moscow away from Bashar? Are they now embarrassed by their clients who... They were supposed to be the guarantors of this agreement that was reached in 2013, that all the chemical weapons were gone. Well, they're not. Whose fault is that? Who is responsible for that? Well, I mean, I think some would say Barack Obama was responsible for that because they, they weren't gone. But let, but let me ask you this, Deb. You, you, chemical, so it's, it's a lot to wrap your head around that maybe, you know, Assad used these weapons as a purpose, you know, f- as this chess play to, to try to drive Russia and the United States further apart. But what are the other reasons? Because I hear this question a lot. What would drive a leader to use chemical weapons? What is what what is what are the sort of traditional tactical reasons to do that? I understand, as I get it, it's about you know when you're outnumbered, you're when you're losing, and you can kind of reset the board. Well, you know, look, I don't want to be in the business of trying to psychoanalyze Bashar al-Assad. That is a losing game. Um, but I, the, you know, the 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 typical reasons uh, that you do it, that a leader does it. We saw Saddam Hussein do this in in you know uh, against the Kurds uh, in the eighties. You do it because your troops are exhausted, um, because you 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 can't conventionally mount an attack. You know, Idlib is close to the Turkish border. This is this is different. 
different geography than than we saw in Aleppo. Um, there is a there are rebels uh, in Idlib, mostly because they were pushed out of Aleppo, um, but it's very close to the border, so. Um, you've had coverage more than you did in Aleppo because reporters actually could get into Idlib. Um, so it's possible that that you, you, you use chemical weapons because what you want to say to the population is no one will come and help you. If you are supporting these rebels, I'm telling you, we are going to starve you and bomb you and drop chemicals on you and no one will come and help you. Uh, you know, that is possible. <clears throat> Let's let's bring in some callers. Let's go to Connor in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Connor, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? We are well. What tell tell us what you think about these strikes, Connor? Um, I uh, I'm active duty Air Force right now, and um, from my perspective, it doesn't seem to be a large departure from the previous administrations and now the new administrations policy in the Middle East. Um, this seemed to be much more of a public uh, political gesture than uh, any large departure uh, on the military front. And and how do you feel about that as an active duty uh, member? Do you feel like that's okay? Or do you feel like that was that it is a slippery slope? Or what, what do you how do you feel about that? Um, it's weird, right? Because because we're already there. And we've been there for now, like, before I even was old enough to think about joining the Air Force, we were at war in the Middle East. We've been there forever. So that the policy isn't changing, it doesn't surprise me. Um, it, it's more of a, it's kind of interesting to watch uh, the general public eat it up and, and praise it as if it's something new and, and grandiose when, um, you know, I've, I'll, I'll have been spending two to three months of my life uh, in the Middle East for the rest of my contract. And and that's just status quo. That's expected. How, how Can I ask how old you are, Connor? Uh, I'm 24. 24 years old. Never known, never, never been an adult without war. Thanks for that, Connor. We need to take another break. We're talking to NPR's Deb Amos and Phyllis Binnis of the Institute for Policy Studies. Stay with us. is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm John Priddo, here from The Economist. So, the, we, we heard from Connor before the break, 24 years old, active duty military. I'm, I'm really struck by what he had to say, that he has uh, not seen adulthood without war. Uh, and, and I guess it brings me back to my first one of my initial questions. I've, I've personally lost track of the difference between war and peace. Uh, Deb or Phyllis, what do you have to say about what he had to say? Well, let me jump in with one quick thing, which is he's absolutely right. We have been at war with terror for almost 16 years, and terrorism is doing just fine. That's what tells us we need to do something different. 
You know, it was it was staggering to me on the eve of the decision to go to war in Libya when you had supposedly the the negotiator in chief, the diplomat in chief of the United States urging a military reaction when you had the, at the same time the defense chief, the secretary of defense, Robert Gates, urging diplomacy instead. There was something off about that. That was that Hillary was, Clinton. As the that was Hillary Clinton. And that was in the Obama years. There has been this assumption that war is somehow going to beat terrorism. It hasn't. It doesn't work. And it's not going to work now. It also doesn't work in this kind of a situation against a a dictatorial ruler, unless you're prepared to go for full-scale regime change, which may be the the project that's underway, you know, we are very good at that. We know how to overthrow governments. The U.S. does it all the time and has done done it around the world, not only in the Middle East. But the the question is always, what then? What happens the day after? We know what happened in Iraq, aside from the hundreds of thousands of people who died because of sanctions and the war, you had the creation of ISIS. In Libya, we know what happened. It was the the c- complete collapse of any governance in the country, weapons distributed all across the country and across the borders. We've seen this, and we're seeing it now in Yemen. I'm actually very worried about a possible escalation in Yemen waged in the name of going after Iran. I'm afraid that may be next. And I think what we're already seeing in Yemen is a horrific famine that's now affecting somewhere between 50 and 80 percent of the population of that impoverished country. The U.S. is already participating in a war there, providing in-air refueling for Saudi bombers, selling the Saudis all the bombs and planes that they want, and helping to train their pilots. And I'm afraid we're going to see even more direct engagement. And that will be something that we will be told, this is how we answer Iran, just like we were told here, this is how we answer Bashar al-Assad. And it's a serious problem when we try to answer with military strikes serious political problems. Connor was right. This is a political gesture. The question is, to whom is that gesture addressed and who gets killed making that gesture? No, I, I agree. I was really struck by this idea that for, you know, a generation in this country, there is no other Middle East that they know. Um, and so many people have been directly affected, I, you know, and, and not just Americans going to war. Uh, you know, we have a refugee crisis on our hands. Five million Syrians are now refugees. Um, there will be a price for that uh, down the road, uh, you know. Uh, this, this is in addition to 65 million uh, people who have been displaced around the world. Um, it, it's as big as France and England. Um, half of them are children uh, who aren't getting proper educations or uh, any kind of you know decent way to grow up. The, the, there are long-term prices to, to all of this. So if I could just add one sentence to that, that here in the United States... We don't have the, the refugee crisis. We have a racism crisis. The refugee crisis is happening elsewhere. We have kept it out because of racism. Well, certainly there's been plenty of, uh, I guess, gallows humor about, you know, that the president was moved by the images of children being uh, bombed by chemical weapons, but not moved enough to have let the millions of children who are running from this kind of thing in as refugees in the past. But Exactly. Let's let's bring in some more callers. Jorge from St. Paul, Minnesota. Jorge, welcome to Indivisible, and you're on the air. 
Hey, how's it going, Don? Thank you guys for letting me speak out uh, a little bit of the outreach that I'm feeling right now. We cannot go ahead. First, I agree completely with Dev was saying this is a move to counter Iranian uh, uh, Iranian influence in the region. This is exactly uh, us still babysitting the Sunni Muslim axis of evil of of, of Saudi Arabia, of Turkey, of Bahrain, because we didn't got moved enough to complain to our allies when they were murdering uh, thousands in, in, in Bahrain, when the, Sunni, when the Shia, when the Shia uh, majority population there was being brutally oppressed. Now, this has happened again and again and again. We move, the pre- we move, we move towards trying to help, but we have done nothing but make things worse and bad in the Middle East. Um, I could I could begin telling you that you know the same thing that that she was talking about in Yemen. You know, it, it is it is United States basically uh, helping the Saudis murder civilians. Right. The, uh, and I know the civilians are Shiite civilians, Shiite Muslims, and I believe that we need to understand the difference between the Shiites and the Sunnis. And I feel, I feel like we are going to make the same mistake by supporting the Sunni extremists, the ones, the same ones that. That, that have made things worse for millions in the Middle East. Jorge, I can, I the can, same one I, that facilitated the creation of ISIS. Jorge, I can, I can hear the, the, the upset in your voice there. I, I gather you are Navy. That's correct. I'm a um, Navy veteran. Uh, I witnessed um, us making the same mistakes and us spending millions of dollars and, and so much human life wasted in pursuit to try and make things better. But at the end of the day, we have done nothing but make things worse for millions. We have created the refugee crisis, all because we cannot come into the table with, with those that, that at the end of the day are not what, what, what others make, make it to be. You know, at the end of the day, Iran, yeah, Iran has, has, been, has, been, has been somewhat, and I'm not saying that I'm, I completely support them. No, 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 they're, they're another dictatorship uh, of its own. But so is Saudi Arabia, so is Turkey, so is Bahrain, and those are our allies, the ones that, that we sell guns I'm, to for Jorge, them to oppress minorities. I'm going to I'm going to stop you there, Jorge. Thank you for that. Uh, but either Deb or um, or Phyllis, you know. It's a complicated region. <laughs> you know, that's what we keep saying. Uh, and that's a lot of what I hear Jorge saying. And we don't have a very complicated discussion about it, at least politically here. What 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 could what, what kind of leadership could the Trump camp, could the Trump? I'm, I'm sorry, not campaign. <laughs> could the Trump presidency actually provide on this? If you were if you were starting over and you were saying, OK, you know, we've had a lot of troubles here. But we've got we've got this new president. Uh, where would one start? Well, uh, you know, Phyllis has said correctly uh, that you, you, there is diplomacy to be done. And I think that when this administration came in, there was some notion that however you wanted to parse this, that this administration was willing to talk to Moscow in a way that we hadn't seen before. But already it's clear that they are not talking in a coherent way to Moscow to take any advantage of that. Um, you see that there are different power centers in this administration. Uh, you know, there's the military, there's the generals, um, and they have a way of thinking about Syria. Uh, there's the, the UN ambassador, and she has a different way of thinking. You know, she's already talking about regime change without saying, well, what exactly does that mean? And if you are interested, if you think 
that you cannot solve this war without Assad being gone, how do you pursue that? Are you talking to allies about that? Are you convincing other allies um, who have been in this war for six years as well um, what they think about it? Uh, you know, that is a bit missing from this discussion. I think there's a lot of things missing from this discussion. And I think what Deb raised is absolutely right. I think I would go just a little bit further to say that the broad question of the role of the United States in the region has to be completely reassessed. You know, we have been there for a very long time. And if we look at just the more recent history since 2001 with the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and then 2003 in, in Iraq, the U.S. has brought enormous destruction and suffering to peoples across those countries. Yes, we overthrew dictators in some of them. It didn't make it better for the vast majority of people in those countries. It's one of the reasons why, if you look at Iraq, why was ISIS able to gain such a foothold in Iraq? It's because they didn't fight alone. They got support from ordinary Sunnis, uh, sorry, from, from, uh, yeah, from ordinary Sunnis who were afraid that these, this new sectarian government the U.S. had installed in Iraq was going to oppress them even more. So they saw ISIS as a lesser evil. That's Phyllis, the kind you, of thing we can don't you change. Think there's a bit of a danger here that because we're, you know, looking at this as Americans, I'm not an American, but for the purposes of this conversation, <laughs> you know, I'm, I American am. American show. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That we kind of look at everything through an American lens and think that American military power is the thing that determines everything in the region. Whereas actually it's perfectly possible right. that, you know, you would have a similar chaos, maybe less, maybe more so, without American intervention. I mean, it, Absolutely aren't right. You, I think aren't if, you ascribing too much, you know, too much agency? No, I'm saying quite the opposite. Extent. I'm saying that we have to rethink this whole idea that we belong there. This is not our countries. These are not the regions that we live in. When it goes back to, to President Jimmy Carter, when he said that we will use force to protect, quote, our resources in the Middle East, he was talking about oil in Saudi Arabia. And I always wanted to ask the question, how did our oil get under their sand? <laughs> you know, this doesn't belong to us. And we should get over the notion that it's up to us to decide who should govern in Syria, who should govern in Iraq. This is not... This is what imperialism looks like. This is not but, what democracy looks like. But I think that argument is easier to make in the abstract, isn't it? You know, everybody I can give can you examples that, if you that, want, well, could, Just, Just let me, let me finish. Um, you know, but then when it comes down to you have a chemical weapons attack in Syria or you have um, lots of people, you know, lots of Yazidis trapped on a mountain in, in, in Sinjar and you as the American president look at that and think, hmm, I can either do something and try and stop these people being killed or I can do nothing. And at that point, the instinct to just say, oh, well, let them all sort out their own problems, you know, uh, runs into no. some problems. I think, I think, John, you're starting at the wrong point. I think what's true is that there is very rarely a moment when we can have a good strategy for dealing with an, an emergency that happens on a day and that we're going to be able to save this group of people at this time. We can't do that with diplomacy. All of these are medium and long-term solutions. They're not short-term solutions. But what we have to face is that these military acts are also not working as short-term solutions. Even the example on Mount Sinjar, it was overwhelmingly the local people, the local Kurds, who 
rescued the people on Mount Sinjar. The U.S. bombing didn't do it. It was local armed forces who were able to protect their own population. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not saying that military force anywhere should never be used. Ideally, that would happen. But in the real world, I don't think that's how it works. But how the U.S. has used military force in controlling other countries, usually for the interests of getting control of oil, territory, military bases, not because of concern about the people. That's where we get into trouble. Let me get another caller in here. We're getting a little shorter on time, but I want to try to get it here from as many people as possible. Uh, Francis in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Francis, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Thank you for having me on tonight. Um, I've been listening to you guys since I called in, and my big thing is that I've heard, I'm, I, I voted for Trump because like, I honestly couldn't have voted for Hillary, which is my personal opinion. But um, my thing is, is we need to, yes, we need to do the diplomatic portion, but sometimes with the diplomatic portion, we need to have a strong hand involved in it. I don't agree with all U.S. forces going in there or U.S. forces in general going in there. But at the same time, we got to keep an eye on that because if we don't stay somehow involved, we're either giving in or Russia or another country is always sending in money or sending in arms to back this. So we can go back as far as 1980, and we've caused every problem that we've had by supporting the organizations that's caused us problems since. And so what about this specific intervention? Did did you feel like having voted for Trump uh, and his message of non-intervention, did you feel like this was that he made the right choice by breaking with that message? I, I think he did because, you know, you can we can only stand back so long. I'm not saying that we need to go over there and do something about it. I just, other than what he did, but like I've heard other callers say tonight, even Bill Clinton struck out on a base when um, we had Al, or not Al-Qaeda, but uh, Bin Laden, the first attack on the World Trade Towers. You know, so w- where are we going, no matter if we're Republican or Democrat, there's someone always going to not like what the other person does. And to me, yes, it's not the best idea, but we need to do something about it. Because if you, if Obama said, hey, the chemical warfare needed to be out of it, it's still there, we needed to get it out. You know, So at least Trump's going and trying to initiate something from our, our aspect of it. Thanks for that, Norm. Oh, I'm sorry, thanks for that, Francis. I was reading a tweet. Uh, so... Deb, you're going to get close to the last word here. It is <laughs> what is what? What about this surprised you? I guess is really because that's where I keep getting stuck. Is is that I really truly did not believe that Donald Trump would 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 use force this early in his administration. It just seemed to be the one thing he truly genuinely believed. So covering this from Washington, what surprised you? That that surprised me. Of course, it did. With it was head spinning when it when it happened. But I'll tell you what surprised me. You know, the argument in the Obama administration when they called for a red line and and didn't do it was always the argument that if you did it, um, you know, you would uh, march right into World War Three. Um, what's been surprising to me <clears throat> is the price has been relatively low. Um, it was a message. Um, it was done precisely. I, you know, who knew that, that a cruise missile 
uh, you could aim a cruise missile so precisely that you didn't hit where you <laughs> thought the sarin, you know, the the pails of sarin wa- were in that airport. You could tell everybody to get out of the way. Um, you really didn't kill very many people. It was it was the delicacy of the strike was was also surprising to me. Um, I didn't know that that was possible. Um, you know, it's going forward that really is the question for me. Um, you sent a message. Are you disciplined enough in this administration to follow through, to have one message, to be clear on what the policy is? And if you're going to do it, at least benefit from it, move this situation forward, somehow find a way to use this for diplomatic leverage. You know, don't waste this if you're going to do it. Well, what next? That is certainly the question that we all have. And I think we're going to have to leave it there for tonight. Thanks to Deb Amos and Phyllis Bittis. Tomorrow on Indivisible, host Brian Lehrer talks to, well, me, and Indivisible host Charlie Sykes. We're going to talk about our partnership with StoryCorps. This is a new project aimed at taking two strangers from different parts of the country with different political views and putting them in an extended, in-depth conversation. And since Charlie and I certainly qualify, we're from different places and definitely have different political views, we are having our StoryCorps conversation, and we will talk about it tomorrow night with Brian. And what about you? If you want to step out of your bubble, email listen at storycore.net with the subject line, indivisible interview. Describe what you think is your, who you think is your political opposite, and StoryCorps will try to match you up and facilitate a conversation. That's listen at storycore.net. I'm Kai Wright. Sounds great, Kai. I'm John Prudo. Talk to you next week, and we both will hopefully be well by then. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.